0: hey everyone i'm caitlin yeager and i'm lisa carrico we're program directors for missouri humanities and we're so excited to bring you our latest episode of eat think and be merry
1: this podcast is part of our 2022 signature series and throughout this year we'll feature food thinkers and other special guests with exciting inspiring and downright delicious stories as we consider the role food plays in shaping our society how it connects us to each other, to our own pasts and identities, and to the world around us.
0: We invite you to feed your mind and join us around the table as we host conversations that explore Missouri's foodways and edible history to celebrate the breadth and depth of Missouri's cultural heritage, natural environment, and the relationship between food and the human experience.
1: Welcome to another episode of our Eat, Think, and Be Merry podcast, where we dig into food related themes presented through a humanities lens. In the month of May, we hosted several programs focused around foraging and Ozark foodways. Lisa, you were pretty excited about hosting this episode around
0: this theme of foraging. Caitlin, I was. I have a personal interest in the Ozarks and wild edibles, and as we were researching the topic and talking with program partners for our in-person foraging events, the name Bo Brown kept coming up. Everyone that we worked with recommended him for the podcast Bo is based out of Springfield, Missouri, and he's an educator, a biologist, a musician, and an author with a wealth of knowledge about natural history. So needless to say, when he agreed, I was very excited to talk with him about foraging and his book, Foraging the Ozarks.
1: He has such an interesting life story, and I know I'm looking forward to listening. We kept going back and forth about when to release this episode, While we could have released it into spring during the height of morel mania and the arrival of spring greens, in the summertime for wild berries, dandelions, and sumac, we actually decided to go with a fall or autumn release just in time for the ripening of pawpaws, persimmons, elderberries, and the harvesting of chicken of the woods and several varieties
0: of tree nuts. It is, after all, the perfect time to lace up the hiking boots, get outside, and forage. I think that's what I love about this topic. Foraging is not exclusive to one season in the state of Missouri and is home to a variety of wild edible plants in the form of roots, stems, leaves, flowers, and fruits.
1: I can't think of a better time of the year to do just that. It's been beautiful here in Missouri the last several weeks, so I can imagine there's a lot of foraging recently. My husband and I actually did a little foraging ourselves recently to collect acorns and are trying our hand at making acorn flour. And of course, we had to try and find the ever-elusive pawpaw while we've been out and about. To no avail. One day, I hope.
0: Very cool about the flower. Now you just need the elusive pawpaw and maybe some Missouri pecans to make a pawpaw custard pie. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's jump right in with Bo telling us a little about himself and his first earth wilderness school.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a rather long story. There, I've been at this a long time. <laughs> um, I grew up out in Stratford, uh, a little town east. Uh, it's east of Springfield, about oh, 10 miles or so. I lived in a rural area, and uh, my mom had grown up in so- southern Arkansas, and then moved to around Yelville, Arkansas, in the during the Dust Bowl to uh, there. They grew up as cotton pickers and itinerant fruit, uh, fruit pickers. So they were you can they were at the bottom of the ladder there. So they they ended up getting land over by Yellville, Arkansas and started a subsistence farm and they uh uh were trying to raise hogs and grow their own garden. And since it was the drought and all that, they were just they were struggling to get by. And they she told me about having to, you know, they'd go out to Try to grow something, couldn't do it, so she had to eat what was out there, and so she had about a dozen or so good wild edibles. She continued to eat after that situation. Loved her boiled greens and everything, and uh, every you know every kind of wild fruit that would would uh, be ripe. She'd have us kids going out to picking pawpaws, persimmons, and all kinds of stuff, to, and she'd make desserts or pies with them and whatever. And uh, so that was my introduction from uh just from her and growing up i i after getting out of school i didn't i got away from that a little bit i got into electric guitar rock and roll and didn't want to be associated with being a hick hillbilly and (laughs) quit uh kind of got out of that life for a little bit and in the early 70s i was playing in a band uh, with a fellow named don brink and he had been introduced to backpacking by a friend of his, so we started backpacking together, and it made me realize how much I missed being out. Because I grew up just just being a woods kid. I didn't want to do anything but be in the woods and around the critters and stuff like that. And I, I hunted and fished all the time. And and him reintroducing me to uh, to that aspect again was a was a pretty major major thing for me. So in our backpacking trips, we were kind of go- gear oriented and uh, got before we were carrying 50 pounds on our back almost to go into these hiking areas. And uh, and uh, I had been a musician from early age, uh, and in in the 70s started playing music at, at Silver Dollar City, the big theme park by Branson. And while I was out there, there was a Native man, Jim Fire Eagle, that was um, he was uh, teaching or demonstrating flint napping, you know, making arrowheads. And I had collected them when I was a kid and didn't know people could still do that, so I just camped out at his feet and learned as much as I could. And noticed periodically somebody would come in and uh, throw a plant down in his lap and say, hey, Pops, what is that? And he'd, He would go on for 10 minutes about everything he could do with that plant. If there wasn't a plant you could show him that he couldn't tell you something about. And that really fascinated me. So in our our uh, camping trips. We started doing more of that and trying to leave more and more things at home. We started doing these what I call survival trips or knife and blanket trips, where we would just take water purifier and container, a uh, army poncho, and a and a knife, and a, sometimes a cooking pot. And then we'll, then we started leaving the cooking pot at home, and you know, and then later gatherings, not even taking a knife, or we had to make flint rock to do the uh, to make tools with and just just incorporated as much of it as we could in those outings and didn't really know near enough of it to do do what we were trying to do at the time but uh, you know figured out what you didn't know when you get out there and actually try to do it so uh, that was my my path into this stuff and same was foraging we uh, we were just trying to pick up what we could to feed ourselves when we were on these extended trips and there weren't a wealth of books out at that time. There was, uh, uh, Yule Gibbons had his book out, and there was a fellow named Bradford Angier that had several books on foraging. So uh, we we made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and I had a couple of really good stories about eating something you really shouldn't eat, and I, I won't go into detail about those. But uh, anyway, that was uh, more or less my introduction into that this whole world. And uh, then there was a fellow... Tom Brown Jr. that had some books out and we we read his books and that he had a Native American, Native American mentor as well in the stories. And that really just, well, I just wanted to live that life and be, be outdoors all the time. And uh, so that was kind of our idea to start the school. And at the time, I, I think it was 1985, uh, well I, I toured it was in a touring band up before that I had a band called the Undergrass Boys that we were playing at uh, Silver Dollar City and we had a, a circuit uh, play in college circuit you know, you know college uh, concerts and coffee houses and that kind of stuff uh, did a bunch of opening acts for people like Any Lou Harris and Leon Russell and a lot of big name stuff so we were getting getting a lot of prominence and just it was the road life was killing us. So we were touring and being gone all the time. And the it just wore on everybody. And the band had a rather bad ending. And uh, so the whole year of 1984, I was living in a little place not far from where I live now. And I just basically shut down, lived on land. I didn't really want to go back to playing music, didn't have an idea on what I wanted to do, and didn't have any skills of any kind. So I just was just kind of stuck in a spot and was running out of money and in the spring of 85 got a call from a friend that that um, so she knew that I knew some wildlife students at the MSU or college here it was SMS back in the day and uh, I said well they've got summer work but I can't uh, you know I can't get a hold of them because they're out doing their their summer jobs. but I'd love to do this study that you're you know she was trying to find people to work on this big bird study studying the effects of periodical cicadas on the bird life and animal life and so it sounded like a fascinating study and I just said well I'd love to do it and she said well it's highly trained you know stuff like banding birds and you need some coursework behind you but uh and I told her I'd I'd helped a friend band birds for about four or five days nearby here said, well I'll just put something on a resume and see what happens so I did and kind of well of course padded and stretched a little bit but uh I I put that I'd been doing all this wilderness survival stuff and come to find out that part of the job requirement is that you live on site. And it was this remote area down in uh white river outside of, you know, I guess it was kind of East of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And it was two river crossings to get to the study site. So chances are you'd be river gets up and you're stuck there for days. And I had to work every single day, uh, for a month to get all the birds banded that we had to, to do the study. And so they said, you're gonna be on site for the whole summer. And I was just, oh man, getting paid to hang out in the woods all summer. That was a, you know, just a godsend. And it was pretty idyllic until the tick season and all that. And then I then I realized why they they had they required you to be on site because the kids that worked on the study before once it got into the heat of the summer, they just they did the morning round of bird banding and then went to their dorm rooms in the afternoon and wouldn't come back till the next day so uh I had to experience a few weeks of misery till I got used to you know sleeping in the heat and the ticks and all the all the things inherent with just sleeping on the ground living outside and everything so <laughs> but yeah it was a it was kind of a crash course into all of those. Things that uh, I'd been playing with and studying really came in handy for that that uh, study because there were a few times that the river got up and I was starting to run out of food and it was uh, I had the middle of the day off so I was fishing foraging and figured out that I was competing with some of the local wildlife. I'd go out to I'd spot something in the morning like greenbrier shoots or some little t- tender, tasty vegetable top or something like that. And spot it while I was doing my banding, and then come back in the day when I had free time, and, and deer or something had beat me to it. So it was it was a pretty unique experience. But that was my entry, accidental entry into the world of of uh, songbird research. And if you'd told me the day before I got that phone call that I'd spend my entire rest of my life doing songbird research and doing science like that, I would have I would have laughed the last thing i ever expected to be i'd never been to college and anything like that but it was that was my introduction into that world so got the idea for night in 1990 to start the school and we were up and running by 91 and uh and started just offering classes in all the stone age wilderness survival skills of uh, making stone tools uh making friction fire cordage uh traps primitive traps uh shelters finding treating water and edible plants and foraging and then we do a, an advanced class that for more long term living stuff like uh, uh all of the containers basketry and containers uh making weaponry uh, like uh uh the uh, Cherokee style blowgun uh quickie bows and arrows and uh atlatls and just like i said it, things you need to know if you're going to live as a hunter gatherer out there and and we were doing something a little bit different in showing how showing survival given the fact that you've lost all your survival tools so uh, a lot of the bushcrafters they've got their knives and they've got string and they've got all the you know they've got a, a bug out bag of all their gear in it and, which is really good to have but you're may come to a situation where you lose all that so our idea was to to show what to do if you have nothing but get clothes on your back and and even to replace the clothes on your back because we taught hide tanning and uh how to, you know how to make clothing with uh, out of tanned animal skins and the whole the whole deal so that was how we got into the idea for the school and some years later don uh he ended up getting married and his wife wanted him to get a real job so he He's worked for Borough Mental Health Center down here doing uh, outdoor, uh, outdoor rehabilitation with kids in the Sea star program. So I've, I ended up changing the business name to what it is today, First Earth Wilderness School, and, uh, and have continued forward with that. And he, he's still very active in, in uh, doing outdoor stuff, leading backpack trips and all that. Uh, we do collaborate on an event that happens the last full weekend of September here in uh, close to Springfield, Missouri. It's called the uh, Annual Bodark Skills Camp and in Nap Inn. And Bodark is, is spelled B-O-I-S-D apostrophe A-R-C. It's a French word uh, and a lot of people call it the hedge apple tree or the Osage orange tree. It's a tree. And, uh, but literally that, trans, uh, that uh, French word trans, uh, translates into wood of the bow. Uh, Bois bois is wood and does of, then arc is the arc of the bow. And that's because that wood was the best bow and arrow wood. And so that's why we named the event that, and this will be our 25th year, the one coming up to September. And it's, it's it's like two different types of gatherings. They have these big primitive skills gatherings out West that go for five or six days that is, oh, they'll have 70 or 80 instructors and about 600 students. And so it's based on that, but, but a little smaller scale, but there's the difference is, is that ours has a free uh, public area and it's a lot of Flint mappers, a lot of, uh, we've had up to 60 booths of vendors uh, setting up and a, a good portion of them are guys that make our heads and make art and sell it and live, you know, this is their living. And we also had bow makers and basket people and pottery and just all of the those kind of so it's like a stone age and primitive arts and crafts fair that's open to the public then if you want to pay money you can pay the uh i forget what it is 60 dollars a day and 150 for the weekend or something like that for uh take classes from a we've got a pool of anywhere from a dozen to 20 instructors that uh come in and teach classes for three days so it's a it's a really fun event and uh That all of the things that I do can be found at my website for the First Earth Wilderness School. It's uh, firstearth.org, just all one word. And if you go to the contacts page, there's a link to that uh, event there.
0: Yeah, that's such a, um, your school is so fascinating to me. I'm over here just, uh, I keep thinking about the popular TV show that was on. I'm not for sure if it was still on, but you guys are like the original survivors.
2: Well, I, I somebody told me about that when it came on and I watched it and I just thought that isn't that is little to do with survival. That's a, that's a popularity <laughs> contest and a soap opera.
0: <laughs> I know that's why I'm saying you guys are like should have been the like liaisons for that show. You're well, you're they, essentially doing what they hoped would be portrayed in that show. It's great. Well, they
2: contacted us. And they, I mean, every one of those shows that come out, if you have any online presence whatsoever, Of doing this stuff, every time a new show comes up, they they hammer you trying to get you or somebody in your network in for the talent. They're always looking for talent to go on (laughs) these shows like that, and you know I just didn't have anything to do with that one just because I saw what it was. And they they want big personalities and lots of drama, and that's uh, that's (laughs) I I run away from.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think it's so fascinating that. You know, you're, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that your mother like was foraging for sustenance and during the great depression and that that's been passed on to you. And then, you know, you've just had this very interesting flow in your life of being a musician and just the people that you have connected with over time. That's kind of brought you back to uh foraging would you say that that's correct because you you did write a book too um called forage in the ozarks
2: yeah and and again that like a lot of the other things in my life was just providence you know the the whole bird thing it was just something that dropped in my lap and it was the same with the the book i had thought about doing a book for years and then just wondered if with all the wealth of books that were out there and how much was out there, do I really have anything to add? And, and uh, then uh, they called me and they're doing a series. It's Falcon guides is the name of the publisher. They're the largest field gut publisher in the country. And they uh, um, get bombarded by hummingbirds again. Uh, Anyway, they they're trying to get every bioregion of the country or individual state covered by a foraging book. So they already had uh, old foraging the uh, uh, New England, foraging New York, Uh, I think they did uh, foraging Rocky Mountains and in all most of the Western coastal states, uh, Oregon, Idaho, Washington, uh, California, uh, they've got books on those and now on uh, one on Texas and Arizona. So they are just looking for an author to author foraging the Ozarks because they researched they're trying to find areas that hadn't had a, a regional foraging guide so they had all these spots identified and started looking in the ozarks and found out what a deep historical connection you know that's it's an ongoing thing with the ozarks uh people tend to think that think of this as a secondary appalachia and it is definitely a, a completely different culture but uh a lot of times the, the Western drives of people leaving Appalachia and trying to go out West. This was as far as they got. They were trying to get further West of the land of milk and honey in California. And they, they didn't, they got into these Hills and hollers. And a lot of them, a lot of the Scotch Irish, they liked the forest aspect of it and just stayed here. A lot of people just didn't make it past here. So, uh, anyway, it, uh, it, it was full of, uh, it's rough land. It's not there's not much farmland and if you're gonna exist and hang on here, you gotta be kind of rough and tough too and figure out how to eke a living out of this gravelly, hard scrabble ground. So the people that did stay here, uh, there was an it's an ongoing tradition of foraging that uh, you know, they did it because they had to, just like my mom. But uh it it's turned into part of the culture. And so I've I've known I've grown up people same as me. They they ate the stuff as a kid and and once they got older and started cooking for themselves, they decided they really liked the flavors. And plus there's just so many benefits. I mean, you could go you could write a book of just about the benefits of of eating wild plants versus and I in fact I did a uh, a seminar for about 10 years. Uh started doing it at the Ozark Folk Center. Um, uh, in fact, I just got back from their annual event there. It's a, it's a wild herb walk and medicinal plant, the symposium, and they've been doing it for a lot of years and I've been in, involved in it. Uh, but that was the first time I ever had to sit in front of a crowd in a room and talk about plants as opposed to walking around and showing people plants. So it was a, it was a big change for me. But that I, that's what I chose for my first seminar was uh wild food versus industrial food. And I just I knew it was more nutritionally dense and vitamin rich. And it when compared to anything, you know, any uh comparable domesticated species, it just it just blows them off the charts in, in those respects. But I didn't know how much medicinal stuff was in the, the food that we're we bred out of our domestic food supply. That is still in the wild stuff and it's amazing how many uh cancer fighting uh compounds uh body regulation things antioxidants all the things that you want to take medicine for is in this food and uh so i mean there's a long tradition of herbal you know uh, herbalists and herbology and studying to make medicines out of it and my my uh take on it is i would just as soon eat my medicine as to take it home and make a concoction and, you know, and you still have to do that. There's some very specific ailments that uh, traditionally you, you concoct a a medicine of some kind of tincture or a decoction or, or infusion or whatever to get a specific, a specific part out of that plant that will have an effect on your body and help it heal. And, uh, but the more you eat your medicine, the less you're going to have to have, medicines, exterior external medicines like that to fix things. And it it
0: really Yeah. I feel like we've gotten so used to modernized medicine. And as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about to my uh environmental studies class I had in high school and we would talk about the rainforest and all these like beneficial plants, but nobody talked about our regional you know I went to school in St. Louis and here I am next to the Ozarks with all these herbs and medicinal plants but that was never ever a part of my my science background is these resourceful plants that are right here in Missouri.
2: Yeah that's the thing that kills me is that I know tons of people that grow herb gardens and make all these herb medicines and everything and they you know they have to buy the seeds to start them or they buy buy starts or whatever but Then find out that there's a native that has the same properties that's growing underneath their nose that they've been walking on for (laughs) most of the (laughs) time and uh you know that they're it's just right here and and as far as uh you know this is a one of those little anecdotes but every ailment that native americans had there was some kind of a plant that could help with it and so that's uh you know, you want to get it where it's at, which is wherever you live, there's going to be something growing that you can use. You know, you may have more of one, especially the Ozarks. The Ozarks is one of the most amazing places for plant diversity. And uh, it's just just any given acre of land here. If you go out to the Western Mountains, you will you will have to cover a very wide range of altitude and ground to get half of the number even a third of the number of species we have here in just one little you know a half acre of ground or something like that it, it during well, here's an example i had one of my survival skills classes here uh a weekend before last uh normally I'd, i've got uh 10 acres of land on the Nying river north of springfield it's a big wilderness and it's right on a big river and i bought that in 1990 specifically to start the school to to do the classes there but uh, that's when we had those floods and I had my assistant go up and check the river and my yard was underwater and it was about so you know a few feet from getting into the building up there so and he couldn't you couldn't even get down the road to get into the place so I had to make a change of plans so we moved here to my my cabin uh, where my cabin is outside of Springfield got a little wet weather creek and a low area it's the only flat ground is along the creek which is about oh, a couple hundred yards down the hill and uh, but we we camped along that creek for the class and on the foraging walked we went from that creek the 200 yards up to my house and found 31 species to put in uh, plants covering I think 19 different plant families that we put in our salad that night and that's just one one habitat right there you know in 200 yards and uh, and that's not even going you know going up another little hollow there's probably another half a dozen plants i could have gone up this hollow or gone up on top of the hill and got into the more dry habitat and the dry upland woods and got a lot more different things and it just it just continuously amazes me how many you know how many different plants and how much of it is edible I mean, it's just I'm finding out in the, the bird world, I had a really deep dive into the learning plants, not for uses or anything like that, but uh, we had to do uh, habitat vegetation analysis on a lot of these bird studies. So after you get through with the breeding bird surveys or banding or whatever you're doing during, you know, with the breeding season, that ends at around the end of June, July or so, their territories start breaking down. And you do other work. And one of the things you would do is these um, uh, habitat uh, vegetation analysis. And that's where you have to learn every single plant that's out there and measure the sampling methods that gives you the actual structure and species composition of any habitat. That you can kind of quantify what the habitat is, you know, before you can say much of, of what's going on there. So I had to really crash course in learning plants by their Latin names and learning every single thing that was out there. You know, if you didn't know it, we'd take samples of it, take it into the key. There's a a book called uh, The Flora of Missouri by Julian Steyermark, and they've since did a three-volume up, upgrade or updated that book, but we just had the old one, and it was a plant key. And so it, every plant that had ever been found in Missouri is in that book at that time. And so we had had to take it through all the different keys to figure out what species it was. And then, but it was, I just learned so much in that. And if that's the kind of stuff, if you don't, you don't keep using that, it just just falls out of your head really quick. So I've lost so much of that, But, but of those plants that I learned there, I keep coming back to, and every year I'll find out some more about the plants that I've known about for a long time. But I find out about different uses of them from different sources. And and a lot of the stuff isn't in books. I mean, there's just no not good edibility information on a lot of plants that weren't popularized for one reason or another. And and my idea is that if I, I, look, I look through all the known stuff about it, first find out if it's toxic in any way. If it's not toxic, I'll try it. I'll taste it. A lot of times it's, sometimes it's got a whang to it, a real strong flavor, but the whole thing about combining flavors with all this, this, there's so many different things. You can make a mix of those strong flavors and uh, mix it in with milder greens, you know, like with a salad, put a little dressing on it, If it's a boiled green, same thing, put a little balsamic vinegar and salt on it. And all of a sudden those kind of strong off-putting flavors are magic when they're mixed in with all this other stuff.
0: Yeah, I love this, Um, just the variety, uh, one, just the abundance of the, the plants that are available, but also knowing that they provide different flavors, maybe some better than others, um, in your book, you highlight over a hundred commonly found edibles in the Ozark region, um, from both introduced species to, uh, native species, um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about some of your favorite favorite species and why, your favorite forage species and why?
2: Well, the, that's, I've been talking a lot about favorites lately. <clears throat> that's having favorites flavors, and favorite plants and everything is kind of, that's it's put us in a bad position. My favorite is the thing I'm eating right then because it's, there, it's available then, it's got mm-hmm. a window. It's it's going to be gone in three weeks, so that, that's my favorite at that time, at that place, but then you oh. got to move on to something else, and uh, I, I do have the things that I really look forward to getting to in, in fruits. It's pawpaws. Uh, they're just nothing like, like that, and um, we just sampled some uh, wild passionflower fruit jelly. Um, if you make jelly out of that, the, the fruits are called maypops because they're Around. They've got kind of a fleshy, uh, soft exterior. And the seeds on the inside are, they're like little, the seeds are encased in this little membrane with juice. And it's sort of like a pomegranate. And those are called arils, spelled A R I L S. And the, you harvest those things to get the pulp out and then just make a syrup with them. And uh, some people make jelly, but uh, that is just one of the most unique, perfumey tropical smelling things you can have so the the favorites list would be a a long very you know long list depending on what season where what habitat i was in and all that kind of stuff but the thing i was talking about earlier is that people get favorites of what they like to eat their favorites and it usually involves mild and sweet (laughs) which is exactly what our food supply has been selectively bred for uh, and I've looked into this pretty extensively about um, what uh, what happened when we were going from hunter-gatherers into a, a more agricultural society. Hunter-gatherers were eating hundreds of species a year. I mean, it was just for that same reason. They were, you know, whatever they were at, whatever season they were in, there was a window for each plant that it's edible, and sometimes that's that's a few days because you once it gets ripe, it doesn't ripen you can't ripen it like you can a tomato and uh you know pick it a weeks earlier and have it ripen it has to ripen on the vine or tree and you have to be right there right then to beat the critters to it so you might have a day or two before it starts disappearing some of them have a longer window of edibility but anyway like they were eating hundreds of species then when they got the idea to quit, uh, to well, they didn't really quit hunter-gathering. They they basically wanted to control their food supply, so they started trying to grow and cultivate a lot of their favorite crops. And right off the bat, a lot of those plants won't grow outside of the their habitat where they're found because there's just all these mycorrhizal connections and fungal connections with. Uh, with mycelium fungus that reaches throughout the whole forest that creates little microhabitats, But that's why that, you know, you'll see a whole hillside, but that you don't see the whole hillside covered in all these plants. You'll see little spots here and there and, you know, just places where they, go, where they grow. And a lot of times that's because the fungus has created a little microhabitat there that it can exist in. And they, you just can't recreate that by taking some soil and putting it in a garden spot and trying to, trying to, to make that happen. So, right off the bat, it na- narrowed down the number of species they were consuming down to dozens, and that, w- that presented health problems right off the bat. They, uh, they did some archaeological studies to where they looked at uh, cultures that were. Coexisting in the same area, some had tra- transitioned into agriculture, others were still hunter-gatherers, and they could look at the, the skeletons from the archaeological record and, and tell by looking at the skeletons which ones were eating agricultural food, because they just, within a few generations, started developing degenerative uh, things like bone uh, bone density loss, bad teeth, they started getting bad teeth. Uh, all kinds of uh, just degenerative health problems from not getting a wide variety of medicinal compounds and, you know, vitamins, phytonutrients, anthocyanins, all the powerful medicinal things that are in those plants. And whenever they started growing, they did what humans do. They picked their favorite. They, They had their favorites of things that they liked. And so they were, they were selectively breeding to get the bigger fruits. They were selecting to get the, the sweeter. And a lot of times if they were trying to develop something that was easier to process, that's how we got corn because it's most, it's a grass. Most of the grass seeds are, they're just too, too hard to process to get the germ out of the, out of the exterior to make it worth a while. And, um. Anyway, all these selective processes onto the plants further made them where they weren't as healthy as something that grows out in the wild where it's supposed to when it's supposed to. And so even they people even like I said they grew shorter in stature because they weren't getting the adequate medicinal stuff. And then that that was reversed after a time just from you know we were getting so much food and we're and we're starting to grow cows and have fat. In a, in a wild diet, fat is the hardest thing to get. If you're eating a subsistence diet off the land, you, it's a conscious effort every day to seek out fat because there's, there, it's not like our culture is trying to avoid it because it's in everything we do because that was a driving factor whenever we were hunter-gatherers is to get fat. Well, now that we've got cows that are you know like 30, 40% of their body weight is fat, and all of the plant oils or it's we got mechanical means to harvest fats to, to get the plant oils. Now we've got so much oils we're having to do things to avoid eating too much of it. But we are biologically driven to seek out fats because they're so hard to find in nature. And so there's like I said, all these selective processes come to bear on the plants and uh, you'll get a tomato that's just big red juicy thing and it's mostly sugar and water. Mm-hmm. The, the, the comparative thing that we have locally to a tomato is called a, uh, a ground cherry. It's in the same family, which is the, the deadly nightshade family or solanum. And, uh, you know, some of the most toxic plants like belladonna are in that family. But most of our food, a lot of our food plants like potatoes, peppers, uh, you know, tomatoes, uh, eggplants, all those are that same family. And uh, but they took that uh, that that little thing that looked like a berry, and uh yeah, there's probably a European thing that the tomato started with. I'm not even sure the where that that one even came from. I hadn't looked into it. But most of our our plants have a have a wild counterpart somewhere, and a lot of times they it's like in corn, it's so far back that it's hardly recognizable as what it was when we started with it but that's that's just one of the things we've done to our food supply is made it sweeter and and juicier so it's so big that it's just water and sugar and so you're not getting the density of the things you can eat a small handful of wild food of of any kind and and feel like you've eaten twice as much uh, if you're eating eating something you bought out of the store
0: yeah this is so fascinating i think you know it's an interesting to think about when we were first eating off the land and then how we wanted to control food and we started using agriculture. And now I feel like we're back at this place where we're like understanding how nutritional these original plants are and and people are like seeking regenerative agricultural practices to improve our soil, to get nutrients back into um, the food that we eat. But then also, you know, I feel like foraging wild food has grown in such popularity over the recent years, you're starting to see chefs incorporating foraged ingredients into their food and their drinks. Um, so in your opinion, and it kind of maybe relates back to this nutritional part, but when and why did it become popular again or much more mainstream and why you think people are drawn to this movement of foraging, um, And there may even be an argument here that I live in the city, so uh, that maybe foraging has always existed, uh, but maybe is much more trendier now in the urban areas.
2: Yeah, definitely in the rural areas, there's always been pockets of it. I mean, it's always big in Appalachia, uh, you know, because they're so dang poor, they have to. And in the Ozarks, it was a lot of that too. But even after people started, you know, having enough money, they didn't actually have to do it. The traditions hung on, and so a lot of a lot of families, it's been passed down that they they still do it just out of, you know, cultural tradi- tradition. And uh, but the trendiness aspect of it has a whole lot to do with the internet and social media. Uh, it's it's just now starting to get covered in in broadcast media, but uh, the, when the social media started popping up uh foraging groups online foraging groups it, and it's just like anything else people can find the people they want to find that are on the same learning path and then they can uh, they can team up and get it wider now I'm seeing a whole a whole bunch of young people and people that we would, just wouldn't have had a thought of doing this stuff sometimes they're urban folks and sometimes not maybe small town or even rural people that just hadn't been introduced to it but they're seeing all their friends going out and making dandelion syrup and you know just taking stuff out of the yard and doing these great things with it so there's a huge amount of interest now but it's like our culture has lost the the art of learning the way it's always been done which is learning from other people you know and then later books uh or having a mentor and now it's like I want to, you know, I just want to go online and and I want to start this activity and just go online and somehow absorb a lifetime's worth of stuff in a in a few hours. <laughs> you know, there there's a lot of tools available that weren't available when I was learning it, like the the plant identification apps and the social groups, and you know, just make it easier where people that are into it can find each other. But uh, it's it's a lot of people are diving for head first into it without the slightest idea of what they're doing they just see everybody else doing it and they oh i'm going to go pick this a bunch of these things and the next picture you show there's they have pulled up a you know a foot high stack of something by the roots when they're going to take just the very little tender tops off of it or they'll pick an entire you know armload of something that's not even what they think it is and carry it home to try to process it and so it's like that's we're we're trying to catch up with the popularity of the people that are educating about it uh, getting getting it into their heads that there is a right way and a wrong way to do all this stuff and you do it the wrong way and the resource is going to go away really quick with as popular as it is and uh, there's already you know you mentioned the chefs using it uh there's a a big surge in that right now and the trouble is, is that if you get a, a lot of people that are market collecting and, uh, covering the same area, you start seeing an impact pretty quick on the, the, the plant species you're looking for. And I do, a, I was doing a regular thing at, uh, uh, Saint, in St. Louis It's called uh, slow food St. Louis and they'd had me up about every other year to do a, do a talk they'd always pair me up with a chef that was doing, working with the wild foods. And one of the chefs up there was saying, well, I'm, you know, I was going to bring some of this plant, but I I couldn't find it. Somebody beat me to it. And and they mentioned there's two other chefs that were doing the same thing that they're sending people out to gather this plant and they're all competing for the same plant. And it was like, if you're not finding what you need because somebody else has gotten that plant and they're all harvesting for restaurants... That's a problem. I mean, you're you know, that's the thing about you put a monetary value on a on a resource like that, like ginseng, for instance. That's another one that's in large parts of the Ozarks it's gone because the monetary value aspect of it was is so high, and uh, it, it's the one of the few plants that's regulated by international treaty uh, because it's there's such a big international trade in it and it's considered an endangered species in some places and uh so you have to have a permit to to legally harvest it on public lands to sell it you know any kind of trade in it is all regulated and permitted and size, there's size limitations on how when you can pick it and time you know seasons like everything else and uh but the the newer thing now is instead of collecting everything and natives included uh, a lot of people are moving towards collecting invasive species and it's it's called the invasivevore movement and invasive just really concentrate on things that you know all introduced species a lot of them from Eurasia or just other parts of the world and uh, things that are you know got here by it, it didn't originate here, but a lot of times they're problem plants they're they're creating problems in the environment because they're such uh, such good disturbed ground colonizers or wh- whatever habitat they get into for whatever reason they can out-compete the natives and make the natives start disappearing so it's a way of still feeding yourself and then not impacting the uh the wild the native populations of plants and that's why in my book i put I, I made a note right at the heading on each plant whether it was native or introduced and that will give you an idea if it's introduced uh, plant from Europe. Help yourself. Eat as much of that. It's never going to go away. Uh, <laughs> some of them are invasive, though, and I, I try to make note of that. So, in the, collecting those plants, you want to really be careful and not spread the seeds into new areas because you're going to be creating way more problems that that uh, from spreading those plants around. Like garlic mustard is one of the real good example, and I've seen on some of these online things about. Oh, I don't have garlic mustard. Can you give me some? Get me, give me some garlic mustard over here. And it's just like, no, don't encourage that. You know, you want to, you want to get it wherever it is. But I mean, make sure you. And a lot of people carry bags out and bag the plant. So those mustard, the whole mustard family, a lot of them have uh, have a neat little trick of seed dispersal, where if you bump the seed heads, they pop and explode and shoot seeds out three or four feet so just by handling the plant you're just seeding the whole ground again if you if you don't get it early enough and so I, I try to caution people to great take great pains to not spread those kind of plants into new areas
0: yeah i feel like you know we we're kind of talking about foraging being mainstream and like the act of gathering wild foods cooking it eating it, it, it almost sounds romantic in a way. Right. But foraging really is a a skill that one must learn and practice. There's benefits, there's risks, and there's these responsibilities. Um, so kind of what is your, when you're out foraging with folks, um, what are you kind of touching on as far as foraging safety, proper education, safety measures, or even just like Kind of, we we're talking about the sustainability of it or not spreading uh invasive species so is there like an ethics to foraging as well
2: there's definitely an ethics to it and uh, there's a book i became aware of last year it's uh tending the wild by m cat and anderson it's a very thick book it's not something you're going to read in a night or two uh, but it's one of those books you can open it up at any point start reading and learn so much about how natives tended the the land around them. We got to we have this idea about that there was just this big untamed forest of wilderness that were plants everywhere and the natives just had to go out and just figure out what was edible and collect it and bring it in. That's not correct. They did a lot of of land management practices. They did lots of burning to to keep down the underbrush, to keep things open, to keep more forbs growing to have new new growth re- regenerating. They did coppicing of trees, which is cutting out the main stem and then letting the, the smaller stems come in. And uh, then they've already, you know, if it's a, like a tree species that you're wanting the leaves off of, that way you, the leaves are right there where you can get to them uh, and, and handy to get to. So, and they've even done that over in the Asia, in Japan, where they'll coppice, a, they'll cut a big stump down and harvest that tree, but tend the root you know, they'll cut it in a specific way, so it'll sprout out maybe eight different sprouts of trees, and then over time, those get big enough to harvest, and you can harvest one or two at a time, and instead of just cutting one big tree down and killing it and using the lumber, you've got a completely renewable source of that lumber, because you just take one or two at a time, and it keep the tree keeps producing new sprouts, and the, you know, one at a time, you harvest the, the bigger ones, and it's just a an eternal source of of wood from that one tree, and just, just things like that. They're finding out about a lot of the colony plants that that people would dig uh, if they don't get dug or tended to at all. And, and people have done experiments with this to where they they had several colonies of different of uh, same plant on their land, and they wanted they had one that was closer that they always dug from. And uh, another one that was further out, they didn't touch. They just thought they'd leave it for for insurance in case the one they were digging on something happened to it. And the ones that were not dug in died out quicker. They did. They have a lifespan, and they they I guess they eventually use up the nutrients in that spot, that little spot, and get uh, kind of senescent and start going away. And uh, they're finding out that digging in the earth in a colony like that just the act of digging up to grab a root or a tuber or whatever bulb, wherever it is you're after in there, the tilling of the ground makes it a better place. So when the plant does mature and drop seeds, the seeds have a higher propagation rate. And so it's, it's, these, these plants have evolved with humans and other things, chewing and nibbling and digging. And, you know, so they, they've got strategies to keep going even on that pressure. Um, and there's just all kinds of things like that about uh about nibbling the outer outer branches of a plant that's say if you're after salad greens or something like that off of a bush or a, a, a herbaceous plant. you know you don't pull the whole plant up, you just take a little little nibble here and there, just take some of the tender tops, leave a few to continue on and flower and what that does is a lot of a lot of plants react to that by producing more branches. More flowers, more seeds, and it's it's got a name. It's called herbivory overcompensation. So by doing that and harvesting in that way, you're actually promoting the plant to grow more big, be more vigorous, make more seeds, and uh, it'll even prolong the har- the harvest time off of that that particular plant because you can come back and take some of the other ones after the new branches have sprouted out, and uh, and it also. Uh, just you know makes the thing last longer and so there's just all kinds of little tips like that about about how to harvest and and sustainably harvest and not not uh, the biggest thing is just be aware of your impacts there's uh, another book that's real popular right now uh, it is um, uh, braiding sweetgrass by robin wall she really captured all of the the spiritual relation that we have with everything, that's the different way of looking at the, the our, our connection with the earth as opposed to the the Western culture, is that in the Native American culture and other Stone Age cultures, we're a member of this community. It sustains us, we sustain it, and it, it can go on forever. And the, the white way or the Western way of looking at things is the earth was created for man man is created to exploit it and it's all there for our taking mm-hmm. that did not turned out so well <laughs> and uh so uh, i the whole point of a lot of my my talks is to try to get people to to realize the the spiritual connection and and all of the things that we have with these plants and fire eagle that was my first introduction to any of that kind of stuff the old Indian in the silver dollar city he, every time he took a plant, uh, he would sit down to it and it looked like he was talking to it. And even when he took a, he poured himself a cup of water, he'd pour a little bit out on the ground. Every time he ate a, a meal, he would take a little piece of it and put it at the base of a shrub or tree at his house. I was visiting his house a lot and uh, they'd always take a little piece of their, their dinner and put it in a house plant down the window. And I asked him about that and he said, that's just our way of showing gratitude for the life that was given. He said, every plant has its own spiritual life. It has its own r- reason for being outside of your need for it. And when you take that plant, you, you know, or take from the plant, you need to be, you know, show gratitude to that plant spirit that that for having it. And uh, their idea was that if you didn't, if you did it badly and took more than you needed and was wasteful or killed things without ne- needing that it, that plant spirit might be offended in the next time you were in bad need and you needed it, it would not present itself to you. I was going to read that little snippet from um, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass book. Um, here's the Braiding sweet grass book. Here's just a list of things. All or ask permission of the ones whose lives you seek. Abide by the answer. Never take the first. Never take the last. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Take only what you need and leave some for others. Use everything that you take. Take only that which is given to you. Share it as the earth has shared with you. Be grateful. Reciprocate the gift. Sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. And it's, uh, it's the honorable harvest is a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the land.
0: Bo, so, I guess, what are your thoughts on, on two different things here? So, how can, especially you as an educator, how can we educate people better so that they understand how to forage responsibly? And then also, are there other alternatives to foraging that allows you to still feel that connection and dependence upon nature, but maybe has um, less of an impact or is more sustainable?
2: A new growing thing that's going on or people that are, are actually trying to grow these species that we're, we've been foraging for so long and create wild food forests. Um, there's uh, Springfield Community Gardens just in our local area have been going with the idea of going that direction. Uh, there's a place out of Ohio, uh, it's called Indigenous Landscapes. Uh, and it's, uh, they do total a rehabilitation of, of badly treated land where it's, you know, it's just been abused land and they will come back in and create uh, entire anything from prairies to a prairie shrub component to what, you know, areas that will eventually be forest and creating these entire food forests of, uh, you know, when I say forest, it doesn't have to be, have to be a tree forest, but just creating a, a, a thing that was mostly. Food plants, and not just food for us, but food for, you know, birds, critters, all the, you know, it's a lot of the stuff we eat is also really good wildlife food. In fact, most of it is, and uh, so there's the, uh, the, the people that have the land and the the inclination. That's a that's a good direction to go with it, and that's something that can actually help take the pressure off of wild foraging to, you know, for these chefs and people that do want to incorporate it and uh it, and it it can be a sustainable model i think of, of a way to to uh to have these plants and it's so easy if you have the slightest little i mean even if you're in the city and you've got a window ledge you know little plant box or whatever you can have your own little weed garden and you don't have to tend it and you know you just it's just basically a lot of these plants they're they're disturbed ground invasives or you know colonizers and if you scratch up some ground somewhere they're going to find their way in there and that's the other thing if people are growing gardens the things they're pulling up as weeds are they're only here because the Europeans treasured them and brought them here because they they liked it for a plant food or a medicine or something like that they didn't what they're getting into when they were coming over here and they wanted some familiar plants so and a lot of these plants are the things that people spend millions of dollars mm-hmm. to spray to get out of their lawns or to to you know spend hours and hours weeding their garden to get rid of and throw away and they're the they're better food than what they're growing in in a lot of ways so it's uh you know a lot of it is education of showing them what's there and you really do have to have, I mean, this is not knowledge that you have to have in your everyday going about your business city life, or even, you know, even if you do live close to the country, it's, but it's enhances life. I think just to have that connection and to be able to go out, feed yourself, uh, you know, share it with others. And just the act of teaching is a sacred act. I mean, that's the, you know, whatever, you know, you, you pass it. And that was another one of fire Eagle saying is uh that knowledge is incomplete until it's passed on mm-hmm. and so when you learn something it's your sacred duty to pass that on and get and make sure somebody else knows it and just and that's how education is always done I mean it's done by the masses now with you know to a very bad effect because people are learning all the wrong things and learning the you know learning the uh, not learning, just learning to take and not be aware of those impacts. So they, they, like I said about the foraging, they see all this stuff, they just want to go out and take stuff and bring it and eat it. And uh, so it, it has to be a part of every, anytime you talk about plants, you have to cover those those things. And I always in my foraging walks, I always touch on, on uh, A, the very first thing you got to hit is just be safe. I mean, just don't eat anything that you're not a hundred percent aware of, it, you know, you're sure of its identification and don't depend on one source to, to do it. You know, I'd confirm it with multiple sources. Uh, if it's something that's out of the ordinary or something that, cause a lot of plants are there, a lot of them are very unique and you're not going to mistake anything for it, but a whole lot of them have like the, the wild carrot is the best example. It's, uh, You know, everybody knows the carrot because you buy them in the store, and a lot of people know it by the wildflower because it's Queen Anne's lace, and it's everywhere, and that's, uh, you know, it's a European plant brought here for, uh, if you plant a garden carrot, you're planting that exact, you're planting a Queen Anne's lace, same exact species, it's just been selectively bred to get that, get more, a bigger starchier, or bigger fleshier taproot, and to have beta carotene to give it, give it the color. But uh, anyway, it's just uh, there's just a whole whole bunch of those plants that are only here because of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what is your advice uh, to someone wanting to go foraging for the first time?
2: Buy books. Get I mean, books are cheap, but foraging books are your best, accurate information. Uh, you can, there are apps that you can buy, uh, uh, plant identification apps. They are not to be trusted. They're a good tool to get you started. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But if you're going to eat a plant, you don't want to, not want to do that. Uh, and just take that, uh, that advice from the app before you eat it. If, if it's not, you know, like I said, it could have lookalikes, um, uh the other thing is just be aware if you're prone to food allergies especially if you're eating a new plant it's a good t- good thing to sample a little bit of it the first time and wait you know 12 hours or something like that you just wait a few hours and you'll know pretty quick if you have a reaction to that plant and then the first time you actually have a have it in a meal just eat very small portions the first couple of times till you know you're not going to have reactions so that's one of the safety things the, uh, the like I said, the identif- identification part of it, uh, don't just buy the books and look at the pictures, read the botanical descriptions. That was my, one of my beefs with a lot of the foraging books is that they had a picture and the, had more or less a thumbnail description of the plant. It didn't go into detail. They didn't, they wanted it to be a layman's book. So they didn't include all of the, the botanical terms and it just, you know, really quick description. And if it's a plant that is very unique and doesn't have any look-alike, that's all fine and good. But if it is one of those, like the Queen Anne's Lace, that might have a poisonous look-alike, like poison hemlock, that's the most toxic plant on the, in the northern hemisphere, you want to know what you're getting. So actually read the descriptions. And that's why I put botanical descriptions in my book that have a little bit of terminology. I mean, there's a glossary to look up the terms if you're not sure, but it will... It will help you in the long run to learn that terminology a bit and and to read those descriptions i i got started in learning plants from a wildflower guide and all those have the have those big long uh very detailed botanical descriptions and that's the level of id you need on on some of these plants to separate them from other plants that could get you into trouble just the safety issue from uh knowing what you're eating Uh, making sure you know you you know you're not eating a whole big wad of something that you might have an allergic reaction to be aware of your impacts Uh, uh, like i said we've covered that ground pretty good about just don't take a whole bunch of whatever it is you're seeing just take a little here a little there if there's only a few of them you know just maybe sample a leaf and move on to something else there's always something else to to get to go for and uh, it's like anything else you do it little bits at a time. It's like being in music. You don't you don't go play a gig when you know five songs. You start <laughs> with a, with a few songs and you build a repertoire. You know you uh, and it's the same with plants. You start with just just make a list of the ones you recognize. And I know everybody recognizes a dandelion, and maybe most people will recognize a broadleaf plantain, and maybe most people will recognize a thistle when they see it. And just just make a list of all the plants you can see that you can recognize and then start building on that. And uh, like I said, there's, I grew up with field guides. I would place them around the house in places that I knew I was going to be sitting for any length of time. Uh, you know, I'd books on my bedstead books on my coffee table in the living room, books around my dinner table. And of course <laughs> in the bathroom. <laughs> and anytime I'm sitting there for a minute, you know, yeah, you just I would thumb through, find a plant that caught my eye that looked especially interesting, I'd read about it, and you know once you read about it and kind of look into it a little bit, then the next time you run across it, you you might recognize it, and uh, so that's one way. The other way is like the fire eagle tried to get people to. If you have a little bit of nature close to your where you live anytime you have a free minute or two, just go out there and familiarize yourself. You don't even have to know anything about it. Just just walk in there and try to not just familiarize yourself with the physical things you can see there, but the sounds, the you know all of it. The, if there's something making a sound, try to you know, key in on that, see if you can figure out what's making that sound. And that's what, that's how I got into bird learning birds by their songs is just by doing that. And and when I'd, I'd hear something, I'd get to binoculars and stalk it and stay with it until I got to look at it. Once I got to see that bird singing, then it kind of stuck in what that song was. And that I had no idea that was a marketable skill that I'd make me, you know, make me a living for the rest.
0: (laughs) I love all of this, uh, the recommendations it's, Foraging definitely takes uh, a lot of observation and care. Um, okay, I have one last question for you. Um, as you know, our theme for this year's programming is Eat, Think and Be Merry, Missouri's Food Ways and Edible History. And throughout this year, we're exploring food related themes through a humanities lens. How do you feel that foraging ties directly in with the humanities and with our connection to Missouri?
2: Well, like I said earlier, it's just a, it's a long tradition of the, you know, even before the colonists got here and made homes in it, Native Americans were, this is an area for resources for them. They didn't, they didn't like to live in this land. It was too closed in and, uh, and probably too buggy in the summer. So they, they liked to live in more open areas, but this was a common, a lot of tribes came into this area to, to live for a while when the probably when the weather was still good and uh and get resources get flint get you know all the things and move out but it's uh it's just a long-standing tradition and uh we really do owe them a debt of gratitude because much of what we know about edible plants and medicinal plants and all of that was based on their experimentations of it. because you know Europeans they thought they knew everything when they got here and they come to find out that all of their knowledge didn't apply to a lot of the things here so what we know about the these plants in in North America came from from those people so uh, and the, the tradition some people held on to it and kept it going and it's just you know food is the most integral part of things that you can do to sustain your life I mean it's it's the the most driving thing that you have to keep keep your body going, you know, is is water and food. And so it should be an important part of your life. And we've reduced it to a, a convenience to where it's, we want to do it as quick as we can, it, you know, get as much bang for our buck or whatever. And, uh, and the least amount of, of uh, time spent possible to get something in our belly. And that hadn't worked out so well so and now like you know like i mentioned uh, slow food to st louis there uh, there's this uh, and it's been it's been around for a long time a long movement of people growing their own foods where they can and if they can't grow their own foods then there's a lot of the farmers markets that they can they can go to there's uh, now there's wild table events there's these uh, uh forest to, forest to table events where it'll be foraged you know all foraged ingredients or a mix of foraged and and common ingredients um but it's something that you you don't have to you don't have to dive off into it's just a matter of going out throwing a few sprigs of whatever is in your yard whatever's handy into your salad if nothing else you know if you've got enough of something to make a side dish with it do that but it's just it's it's just a way to nourish yourself in the best manner possible and have a better relationship with your food and it, you meet so many people that are on the same thing. It is a bonding thing. And a, a short story on that, we, uh, I did a, an experiential program where this guy took us out and blindfolded us and uh, walked us into this big area out in the desert and then uh, split us up into groups. And we had to silently, we couldn't talk. In, in, in amongst each of the three groups. We had to communicate silently to to communicate. These said the two goals after we split into the groups were to find him and to find home. And we didn't even know what he meant by that. Home, was that our camp that was a mile and a half away? You know, was home the, the like the place up on, on the side of the mountain where it looked like an old camp had been? Nobody even knew what that meant. So we did the exercise, everybody kind of hand hand miming, you know, uh, making hand signs and trying to figure out and, uh, you know, cover all the area to find this guy where he was in hiding. And we did that, finally found him. And he said, "You, you, you we couldn't talk till he told us that to, we could talk. And so we, once we found him, he led us up on top of the hill again. And we sat there and we just, everybody just kind of looked at each other and it's like, well, what, now what? You know, do we go <laughs> home, do we, we go to the camp and everybody just looked around for a little bit and, and it's like nothing was happening. So pretty soon somebody breaks out their backpack and they've got a bunch of oranges and they break it open and then other people didn't have food. So they passed it around. Somebody had a big loaf of bread and started breaking off chunks, passing the ground. And pretty soon there was only half of the group that were there that had food. The other half didn't, but everybody was eating. And he, then he spoke up and he says, well, you did it. You found home. And he said, "Home isn't a physical place. home is where you eat together." And mm. it's just it really, really stuck with me, and just you know that's that's the definition of a home is where you eat. And uh, so food is the the all you know tying all of that together in a in a way that nothing else can.
0: I just got goosebumps by that story. I think that's a beautiful way to uh, end our episode. Um, Bo, thank you so much for your insight and wealth of knowledge. Um, I've been keeping an eye on your 2022 program announcements on your website. So I'm very much hoping to see you uh, somewhere outdoors doing something fun like foraging or just learning. So um, thank you for all that you're doing to connect people to um, kind of this, Former past of hunting and gathering, but also um, sustainably finding food out in nature. Well,
2: thank you very much. And uh, it was a very, very pleas- pleasurable conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Lisa. This was the perfect episode for this time of year. And I love how it encompassed so much the popularity of foraging wild edibles, the history, the benefits, the dangers, the ethics and sustainability of foraging. And knowing you, I'm sure you were enjoying it even more.
0: Caitlin, you know it. With my degree in biology and my passion for the humanities, I was so enthralled with this conversation and the intersection of science and the humanities. I love that Bo touched on cultural traditions, indigenous land management, and the spiritual relationship with the earth the health impacts of humans transitioning from a hunting-gathering diet to an agrarian one, and of course, the abundant plant biological diversity of the Ozarks. Our state is so lucky to have such a local wilderness expert. I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you everyone for listening to another
1: episode of Eat, Think, and Be Merry. Stay tuned to Missouri Humanities for our next episode, which will come out in just a few weeks. We'll be interviewing Nephi Craig, an Apache Navajo chef who is headed to St. Louis the first week of November to help us host our Hunt Fish Gather event. Hosted in partnership with the Catherine M. Booter Center for American Indian Studies at Washington University, Hunt Fish Gather educates and engages around the topic of traditional indigenous food and foodways. We hope you join us at WashU for the cooking demonstration and discussion on November 3rd.
0: More info is available on our website. As always, to learn more about our 2022 signature series, visit mohumanities.org backslash food. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Eat, Think, and Be Merry as we explore more of Missouri's foodways and edible history and connect through food.